Hey y'all, it's Danielle. And welcome to episode 34 of Ain't No Free Lunch. And boy, do we have a meal for y'all this week. Tykeen and I are joined by some extra special guests. I mean like top of the line guests, like guests you're like, how the hell did y'all get them to talk about the state of Black education? First, we have Akia Gross, creator and founder of Black Teachers Matter, and Woke Kindergarten. And then we also have the 2019 Intoy, the National Teacher of the Year, and that is national as in for the whole US of A, Rodney Robinson. Both join us and trust we dig in. And as always, we don't let them walk away without extra special guests, extra special recommendations. This episode is everything, y'all. All right, let's eat. What's up? Have I ever been on the show when we've had guests before? Yes. No, we did one in December. Yes. That yes. was embarrassing. But we have special guests, and I'm super, super excited for them to join us. Today, we're going to be talking about a whole plethora of things. It's really going to center around Black kids, education, things that we talk about all the time. But really quickly, before we even get into their introductions, we just want to remind you of what we do, just so you know where we're coming from in, in including this conversation. I'm Danielle, as you already know. <laughs> you listen to me sporadically. I was going to say every week, but that's not cute. We don't upload every week. But I'm a third year PhD candidate at Stanford University, uh, getting hopefully my doctorate in race inequality and language in, in education. What do you mean, hopefully? Hopefully, because COVID, I can't, if I can get into schools, I can't collect data, I can't graduate. Which means <laughs> they're not just going to let me leave with a degree because they feel like it. I'll speak to a manager on your behalf. Um, yeah, you, you call Dean Schwartz up and let him know that I need this degree. Cooper, who are you? What do you do? So I'm still Takeen Cooper, and <laughs> I am still growing higher, and I am the executive director of Virginia Excels, which is an education advocacy organization uh, based here in Virginia. So normally we don't introduce ourselves before we get started, but it just felt natural since we were going to have other people introduce themselves. But if we could start with Akia, Akia, if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are, what what you do, where you come from, anything else you want us to know. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. My name is Akia. Um, I often go by Key in many of my creative endeavors. I'm originally from a DMV from Maryland, and I currently reside in Brooklyn. However, due to COVID, I am back in Maryland for the foreseeable future, still paying Brooklyn rent. So <laughs> that's where we at currently. I am a former instructional coach and kindergarten teacher, having spent the last five years of my kind of around 10 to 12 year educational career in schools, in a school in Harlem. And I started Black Teachers Matter uh, and Equitable Schools. Most recently, I launched Woke Kindergarten as a way to kind of reimagine what learning could and should look like for Black and Brown children specifically, but for all children overall and for families. And 
in my creative endeavors, I also co-founded a creative team called Women Amplify, Women with a XY. Um, and we are an experiential production house that amplifies the voices of women and gender expansive artists of color. And our baby is a concert series based in Brooklyn. It's about two years old at this point and on hold, obviously, called Sisters Unsigned. And it's an underground concert that we host out of a recording studio in Brooklyn where we amplify independent women and gender expansive artists of color. And it's super dope. And within my team, we are all queer, Black and POC women and gender expansive folks who do everything DIY. So my partner is a singer-songwriter. Um, we are current artists in residence at National Sawdust, and we had produced a show called Seasons, A Voyage Through Sound. That's our, our finale show got put on hold because of COVID. We lost that, but we do everything DIY. We put our music out DIY, produce, write, engineer it, all of it. So that's kind of where I am. Jack of all trades kind of. <laughs> Jack Waltrys, indeed. I actually didn't know about Women Amplified, so now more people will know about it. Rodney? Oh, uh, hey. What's up, everybody? Um, my name is Rodney Robinson. I'm the, currently, I'm the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. I spent 20 years in education. All 20 years have been in Richmond, Virginia. I started off at middle school, then I moved to high school. I uh, spent 12 years at Armstrong High School. It's just one of those schools where everything in the city, all your isms meet. Your, your classism, your racism, and it's a predominantly Black school. And it's pretty much one of those areas that people think is rough, but to me was the best experience of my life. I learned so much there about how to take care of community, how to build relationships, and the power of just Black people coming mm -hmm. together to make a difference. And then about five years ago, I moved down to... Uh, the juvenile detention center in Richmond, Virginia, to teach at their school called Virgie Benford. And um, it's weird, I got the call. I didn't think I'd want to go, but then that's when Department of Education came out their report, their first comprehensive report on the school to prison pipeline. And it said Virginia was the number one state in referring students to law enforcement. Oh, wow. So to me, that was sort of a sign like, okay, I can read books and talk about it, but I can go down there and talk to the kids about their experiences and start, you know working backwards and building programs to help keep students out of the juvenile detention center. And I was just going about doing the work when lo and behold, all these accolades came my way. But to me, it was accolades for my kids because it was just a chance to amplify their voices on a national stage. Because I always say I represent two groups who don't get the microphone in educational conversations. And that, of course, is students in jail, alternative students, and Black men. There are only 2% of us in education. And so it's really a chance for me to talk about importance and need for more Black teachers in general, but specifically Black men in education. I'm so pleased right now. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you all's prefer pronouns? Mine are they, them. I he, him. And then I'm she, her, hers. And I am, I'm Danielle, by the way. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm so excited about having you all here today. You both know probably from some of my Twitter likes and retweets that I'm huge fans of your work. So dope. And and actually did not connect Akia and Danielle like in Texas a few years ago. Like, <laughs> didn't y'all meet? 
Yeah, yeah. We were actually talking about that a little bit earlier. So that had have been like 2016, 2017 in there. I went to go to a PhD interview at UT Austin. And you were like, oh, my homie is at South by Southwest. I think. Yeah, EDU. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, like Coop connected us. And I remember I couldn't get there because UT Austin like didn't have Uber or like just oh yeah because uber was kicked out of austin at the time yeah Uh i really struggled to like meet up but then we did and it was great and akia like you were there for i don't remember exactly there's like a whole education like space there right yeah i was there for south by edu that i was 2017 my first year down there as just someone who was there as like a person to experience it. And then the five, the subsequent years, I came in with full force and have had like a ton of sessions since then. So that's wild that that was the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you and Akia know each other from where? The University of North Carolina. Oh, um, heels. <laughs> my roommate at the time had a huge crush on Akia's roommate. Put this man on blast. <laughs> yeah, it ain't no secret. Chris Neal, what's up? <laughs> then some of my other friends, like Janelle Monroe, was like, hey, do you know Akia Gross? Like, uh-huh. she's from the DMV. So Janelle used to kind of be a perpetrator, y'all, <laughs> because she had a 757 number. So I thought that she was a Virginian. And when you at UNC, like other staters kind of build their own community. Come to find out she was from Fayetteville. She just had a 757 number. So I was like, you got a false claiming, right? (laughs) But Janelle was like, yo, you really need to meet a kid grows. Like, all right, cool. Like I'm always dope people. I'm always happy to build with. So. And then on my end, I knew, so I've been calling you the (laughs) in-toy. Yeah. You know, Danielle, she kind of struggled a little bit with... uh, I've been like, yeah, so the in-toy, Rodney Robinson. (laughs) Uh, So I taught in Richmond with Rodney, and then we both, I guess, we got to know each other a lot better through preparing for the Yale National Teacher Initiative, um, which, Rodney, you've been to, like, multiple times now. Yeah, Yeah, part you want to tell them a little bit about like what what that is? Well, it's um it's a program basically that puts teachers at the forefront. Mm-hmm. It partners teachers with Yale faculty to develop curriculum specifically for the students in their neighborhood in their in their school, and so it really gives teachers full ownership of the curriculum. And the Yale faculty they're just there to point us toward resources and to lead us in you know just questions and just big picture ideas. But the whole curriculum unit is really up to the teacher. And they work with us in making sure that we have the resources in there. And then in the end, we're published on teachers.yale.edu, I think it is. And so it's pretty cool. I've done it three times. Richmond is hopefully one day we'll get this up and running for the local institute. You know, we had our meeting scheduled. Right. We were going to finalize everything mm-hmm. the day before they shut down Richmond. Really? Yes. Our meeting was scheduled for May 12th. They shut down Richmond May 11th. <laughs> Not May, March. 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 Yeah. yeah, March 11th. They shut, down, shut it down. And so it's like, and this is like the third time we've had everybody in place to get it up and running oh, and things just fell apart. And now with the state hiring freeze, we can't get anything going. So it's just... Uh, 
those national teaching institutes are phenomenal because then yes. you take it when you take it down to the regional level, then you bring in local teachers and you have yes. them create their own curriculum given yes. the students that they have. And so hopefully Richmond is able to get that off the ground because that's, oh, I mean, it's something that we're definitely missing in, in yeah. Richmond schools. That sounds major. It's cool because you get to meet everybody from around the country. I think in education, so much, so so much you get caught up in your school, your kids, your moment. And then to work with other teachers around the country and see that we're all dealing with the same issues. You know, it's just how does that issue look in your neighborhood? The same mm-hmm. issues of racism, classism, sexism, everything that, you know, dominates America dominates your school system. But it's just different to see how Chicago deals with it versus Pittsburgh versus Richmond and Philly. And so that's the unique part. It allows teachers to get together and talk about the issues. And then one last thing. Akia, in January, I texted Coop because I was in Oakland and I walked into this building and I was like, guess who I just saw? And it wasn't you in person, but you were on like programming. You had your Black Teachers Matter shirt. They have, they have like printed out cards in one of the offices in Oakland. I have to go back through my pictures. No way. I texted Taiki and I was like, it is such a small world. Like it, it was very clearly you with your shirt on. Um, was it Free Minds? No, I think it was through the Black Teacher Project. Like a con. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. With Misha. Yeah. Shout out to Black Teacher Project. They're dope. Yeah. So, so what Danielle didn't want to share as well, but you know, I'm gonna put this on blast. Well, first of all, I said someone else's name, and so she gave me a super crash response. But Danielle, Danielle was out there in Oakland with her brand new J's on, <laughs> and then she was like, "They're fighting at this game, like, but I got my new J's on. I don't want anybody to step on my J's." So I was judging her. I did. They were really nice, and they were fighting at that game. It, I was uh, collecting data in West Oakland, and I was like, I really, I just paid for these. <laughs> Not what I signed up for. So kind of transitioning here, talking about things around the country. I'm sure, well, I know you all both have strong opinions about the tragedy that occurred in Georgia back in February but of course, we saw the video earlier this week. Would you all like to share any of your thoughts really quickly on the Ahmad Arbery tragedy? I feel like I've been kind of weaving through various trauma responses, mm-hmm. right? Like I am to the point where I'm in such a rage all the time that if I don't actively choose to kind of dissociate at some point from some of it to like recollect my emotions, I I will spontaneously combust. That's how I feel. And like this, it often seems that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how white folks in particular have responded to this Mm -hmm. with everybody running for Ahmad. And I've had many, you know, I've experienced a lot of dissonance around that because, um, you know, everybody's doing it. It's not just white folks, but like white folks are really like, because they're like, we already love to run. So like, we're down for this anyway. Like, you know, it's like not an inconvenience for white folks to run because, you know, they like to do it anyway. It's not um, And I, I enjoy running myself, but I often like the, the performative aspect of what's happening it's so disconnected from like the roots of what has been going on in this country for centuries i really struggle with what's been happening around that and i've been thinking a lot about how that ties in to what we don't do for children um, and what we're not doing with our children in speaking about the whole idea of black lives matter and why it even exists 
exists, right? It's become such a like a hashtag that we haven't gotten into like the nitty gritty of why we even have to say it. So I've been trying to reconcile all my emotions around it. And I've been trying to put all of that into my work with Woke Kindergarten and have, you know, since developed a response in this way of like, what resources can I create? for all families to be able to engage in these conversations with their children. And so for me, when we're talking about what's been happening to too many Black people and too many young Black men in this country, you know, we often lead with death, right? And it's very rarely speaking about their lives and why they deserve to be living. And so one thing that I know that all children can easily understand is empathy and fairness. Children know that from jump. And so the way that I've decided to approach this of like my trauma response is like kind of figuring out how to reallocate that energy into this work of like, okay, how can we approach these conversations with kids? And so I've started to develop these little like 60 second texts very emergently. And I wrote one yesterday called Black Lives Matter. And it was like the first in an unfortunate series of books, right? It's unfortunate because I shouldn't even have to write them. But I very specifically um, highlighted young Black children who have been victims of police and state-sanctioned violence. And so the book starts off with like, I am Trayvon, I was walking. And the next page is, I am Tamir, I was playing, Mm -hmm. right? And the next page, I am Ayana, I was sleeping. And so it continues like that. And at the very end, it's a collage of um, six children. And it has, you know, it says like, we were, we were children and, you know, our lives mattered um, and has their ages. And so it's a way for parents to be able to like use, you know, how often we use anchor texts, mm-hmm. right? When we're teaching literacy, when we're teaching big subjects of like taking like an early reader, because obviously like my background is with young children, to be able to like anchor that conversation and who these children were, right? Who were they? What were their names? Who were their families? Where were they from? You know, what did they like to do? Kids can understand that. And kids can come to their own conclusion that the fact that they're no longer here is not right. It is not just. It is not fair. I have had to be able to kind of repurpose my emotions in this way of like putting that into the work of, you know, getting people on board to be having these conversations because I need white families to stop doing all this running and instead to have these conversations with their children instead of asking black people like what are you doing to protect your kids from being murdered by ours (laughs) what are you doing to stop your kids from murdering ours right so that's kind of where i am with this whole situation for me it was a little different because honestly i had checked out from the news you know so much going on i truly truly checked out from the news for like about two weeks because i just couldn't process any more of the uh, can you curse on this podcast of the BS, I'll just say that. I couldn't. Oh, no, we keep it real. This is safe space. I couldn't tolerate any more of the lies and the bullshit that was going on with the COVID and all that. So I literally tuned out. But then, you know, I saw it and I kind of tuned back in. And to me, it was kind of personal because I've just spent a year traveling the country, you know, as a 300 pound black man. I couldn't count at least 25 incidents offhand where I've been stopped, I've been questioned, or I. I was made to feel as though I don't belong in a particular space. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just thought back over my year and that really, they really hit personally, you know, so many times, you know, staying in four and five hotels a week and getting my room number and having to go all the way back to the front desk because the last thing I'm going to do is walk, wander a hall looking for my room, mm-hmm. you know, with states that have open carry laws. And so 
it, it really hit me personal. And then I was um, sitting back and was like, what, what can my response be? And then um, a good friend of mine, Kalisa Wing, she wrote an article. You know, she, don't, she just said, it's time to don't run with mine. We need to teach with mine. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just a call for teachers to start teaching about criminality and race and start having these tough conversations with your students. And then, you know, I was sitting there thinking, like, wait a minute, these are conversations I have with my kids every single day because they're locked up. And my number one thing is I got to build up their self-esteem and tell them that you're not supposed to be locked up. This is a system that is designed to lock you up. Mm-hmm. And so I got to tell you about the system and build up your self-esteem so that you understand that this is not how you're supposed to live. And so then I was like, wait a minute, these lessons can go online. Matter of fact, earlier today, I tweeted out my first one, and it's one of my big curriculum units on the roots of Black criminality. It's based off of the book and the documentary, Slavery by Another Name. And so and it really goes into examining the roots of prison, the roots of Black criminality. Then it um, ties in Khalil Jabril Muhammad's book, The Condemnation of Blackness. And so, hey, you need to start having these conversations. If you're worried about the types of curriculums you're looking for online, these are the types of conversations you need to have with your kids if you truly want to show solidarity with the mom. And so I have that one. Then there's another Yale unit I wrote on, um, you know, just the history of another one. Basically, it's two units on prison and criminality of Black people. One is pretty much post-reconstruction up to World War II, and the other one starts with the war on drugs and comes up to now. So it's like, you need to understand that Black people aren't criminal. You've been forced to think that Black people are criminal by the system. And so if you start understanding the root causes of the system, then you can examine your own biases, your own judgments, and just start doing anti-racist work rather than just going for a 2.3 mile, which is probably 2.3 miles shorter than the run you was going to do anyway that day. Period. All you got to do is just stop and take a picture for the gram, and then you, then you yeah. continue your run, right? <laughs> and like my man that ran with the TV for 2.3 miles, that, 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 that just pissed me off. It's like... Okay, we get it. We know. Yeah, white dude can run with TV for 2.3 miles if he wants. We all know that. It's not like you're doing anything to prove to. It's like they're trying to prove I'm more woke than anybody. Right. And, and it's, it's frustrating because all you're really doing is you're just showing your ignorance and your disrespect for Black people. Yeah. I think it's beautiful that both of you have like kind of looked at this like as beautiful as it can be given that it's it's done in light of a tragedy, right? Like have looked at this and said like, how do I make this a tangible thing that I can do to improve the lives of children, right? Whether it be like parents having these conversations because a lot, a lot, a lot of parents, especially white parents say, I avoid it because I don't know how to talk about it. And it's like, that's, that's a cop out. And that's how we continue to reproduce these systems, right? And then on the other hand, you have a lot of teachers, especially white teachers, who will say, like, I don't talk about, I don't teach this because I don't want to engage it in the wrong way. So I just completely avoid it, which doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't make anything better. Just because you close your eyes doesn't mean that, like, whatever. It's not happening. We recorded our podcast last week, and for those of y'all who didn't listen, I apologize about the sound quality. I was trying something new. But we were pretty hard on Michael Jordan, right? Uh Uh-huh. And for his his inaction and his silence, right? But that boils down to, like, Michael Jordan had an opportunity to really influence policy to help people that look like Michael Jordan. And he didn't do so. Mm -hmm. And as awful as this is about to sound, and I hope I'm wrong, I really do. 
I think a lot of this outrage is like all by design as manufactured because all this time, like all week we've been hearing that Ahmad's like someone leaked the video, like this leaked right. video. And then we finally found out that it was the shooter's lawyer who leaked the video mm-hmm. because he said that this would vindicate them. And so I started thinking and, and like I tweeted this late one night. I was like, yo, like maybe this is all a ploy that if they are found guilty now, they can say they have ineffective counsel because like he laid the groundwork and like he leaked the video. And of course the video is what led to mm. them being arrested this week. Of course. And then, like, if you go back and look at the uh, some of the statutes in Georgia, there's a significant need there to change policy. And I, I hate that we always have to be, like, so reactive to policy, right? But there are some folks who are making policy-oriented arguments in defense of the shooter saying that they acted within the laws of the land in Georgia, which we know it's absurd, but like, that's where their laws are. And, you know, even in Virginia, I've been super verbal and critical, like about the need for us to remove the castle doctrine and then the felony murder rules. So like, I think there's definitely a lot of work for all of us to do, you know, if it's in education, if it's in policy, I personally believe it's a combination of both, but uh, there's a lot of work to do. I think a lot of what like is situated in this space, especially when you're thinking about law, right? When people, because, you know, people have been saying that, well, he was the aggressor as an Ahmad was the aggressor, which is absolutely ridiculous to me. It's predicated on this understanding of like blackness as criminality and that they're just like with Trayvon, there's no way that this, that they could have been defending themselves, right? Black people can't feel threatened. Black people can't feel anything, honestly, um, if you leave it up to certain people. But like the idea that people have been saying that he was shot because the people who were, you know, following him in a truck with guns felt threatened um, because he turned around and was basically like, what, you know what I'm saying? What is happening? Because he felt threatened. If you- You're fighting for your life, right? Like Literally, but because black people, black children are not allowed to feel threatened and that, you know, that goes, takes us back down the realm of education, right? Black children can't respond from places of fear, from places of trauma, from places of hurt. Like, they are always the aggressor. They are always at fault. And so, like, you see how we have laws that are situated that no matter what laws you have, they can be interpreted in such a way that presumes that Blackness is always at fault. So that's, like, my constant frustration with this entire space, whether it be with Ahmad and running or Black girls are 5.5% more likely to be suspended than any of their girl group, right? Racial girls. Like, and, and there's a reason for that because it's premised in terms of presumed criminality. There are a lot of talking heads now on social media, radio, etc., who are talking about, oh my goodness, schools are closed. This is inequity. Like what happens to all of these kids? Like they act like we didn't have inequity when schools were open, right? Traditional schools. But um, we know that COVID didn't alone create these inequities, right? And a lot of times, in a lot of spaces, COVID has just exposed or exacerbated problems that already existed. What do you think school looks like in the fall of 2020? Like, what do you think it looks like? And then what do you think it should look like? There's like, it's like a kind of like a twofold question there, especially given we're thinking about like the lowest served students, Black students. I think it starts with just the social emotional piece. You know, a lot of kids are going through traumas that 
are unimaginable right now, just suffering from the disease itself. You know, we have people that are losing relatives, family members, you know, on top of that, then you add that into all the other abuses that they face on a daily basis that our kids are pretty much, by the time school starts, they're going to suffer six to nine months of just straight 24-7 trauma. Mm. And so it's really important that when students come and come back, I mean, academics, eh, who cares? You know, we need to make sure that our, that our babies are well, that they're, that they're taken care of, that they get the mental health that they need to process what just happened. That's everybody's, everybody's world has just been turned upside down. And so it's really important that we have the people in place and, you know, getting into, you know, the political realm. The fact that the first thing they did in Virginia's budget was cut the $250 million they had for school counselors. Of course. I immediately went on Twitter and was like, whoa, we need school counselors pretty much more than we need teachers right now when these kids come back to school. So it's really important that we get those school counselors. And now I'm on a state committee and we're talking about what the school looked like and we're talking about how we're going to use the care. Act funding, I'm like, that funding goes straight to counseling. You know, forget about well, academics for a minute. We need to focus on social, emotional learning. We need counselors, mental health workers, and we need to make sure that our kids are mentally in a good place before we can begin academic instruction. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. That's like the ideal, right? Like yeah. that people start to focus on what should be focused on anyway, right? Yeah. And my fear, just based on the lay of the land, is that that will not happen. And it reminds me of like, you know, on Facebook and like Facebook to me is like the cesspool of social media. <laughs> and so I don't like to frequent it that much. But, you know, everybody on Facebook be your homies from home, the yeah. people that you ain't talked to. And you look at like, why are you posting that? Like, this is wild. Like, you got white, white. Um, like Facebook <laughs> is like that place, <laughs> you know? So, and you know, because we're always being watched and spied on and, you know, ads are just coming up. I didn't see an ad for Uncommon Schools that I posted. And it's this, this ad and it's this picture of three black children sitting in like, like lawn chairs, a little bit spaced away from each other, but definitely not six feet. They have laptops that they're typing on and they have masks on. And the, the caption is, Learning never stops at Uncommon. Badges gave me apply for the fall. And I was like, I was just thinking to myself, like, first of all, in order to create this ad, you literally sent somebody to where these black children live Uh in New York. You had them first. I forgot to tell y'all, they were in full uniform. They were in uniform. So you had them put their uniforms on. You had them put masks on. You had them sit outside in these little lawn chairs talking about something learning never stops. And like, it, it's, it's mind boggling to me because we know that so many folks that do work at Uncommon are, are Black folks. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. really buy into this mm-hmm. charter nexus that exists. And yeah. it's always interesting to me that there, the buy-in is so much of what's upholding and perpetuating the system as opposed to going into it very strategically, knowing that our families are still going to choose these options, maybe now more than ever, That's right? Because they might feel like, I feel failed by my like public school option. And so like, I've been told that the charter is better. Like they're being fed these lies anyway. And then you're not getting in there and doing any type of disrupting or burning down or abolishing from the inside really strategically, right? You're not doing that. You're just upholding the same systems that allow you to post ads that say, learning never stops at Uncommon. 
even if it's a pandemic. And so that's my worry, right? My worry is that Governor Cuomo, you know, because I'm in New York, Governor Cuomo decided to put together all these people to reimagine schools <laughs> funded by a billionaire who don't know nothing about nothing. Always. And then it's, there's nobody currently, there's no New York City teacher or parent that's involved in this. This is all people upstate. These are all upstate people, completely different demographics. So you telling me New York City, which has the greatest inequity, we already know, public schools included, that you have nobody that is reimagining education that is actually hip to what's going on. So th that's my fear is like, we know, right? You know, Rodney, like we know what needs to be done. And I just fear that it won't be done. So the way that I've always, you know, I've been operating and I continue to operate is again, we all we got. And I'm very much like, we need to take it ancestral and really kind of work within our own communities outside of these institutionalized spaces. So I ain't even thinking about school for real. I'm not thinking about traditional school at all. I'm like, okay, cool. This is where we at. All right. How can I equip families and like teachers that are in, you know, uh, communication with families? How can I equip them to be doing this type of work that we need to be done? This social, emotional, physiological, mental, right? All of this work, this liberatory work that needs to be done. What can I do to help equip them in this way? Because these institutions, they're going to be worse than what they were before. This to me is like prime time to reimagine what it could look like in the fall of like, okay, great. Now all of a sudden, like the destruction is occurring, right? The destruction that we feared, a lot of us have feared and just like a lot of people are scared to be abolitionists in this, in this day and age, right? A lot of people just, we want to be privileged adjacent. We want to get to be principals and deans, right? We got to be the dean, right? We got to be the, the warden of the school. <laughs> we, we want that life, right? And we aren't often, there's a, there's a fear involved because we lose money. We put our careers on the line, all this stuff that we can't be scared of anymore. But now the system is killing itself, right? It's imploding. So I'm like, what are we going to do about that? We can continue to like innovate from the destruction. We got to make sure it stays de destroyed. <laughs> like, like that's what we got to do. To me, it all is, you know, it goes back down. And the reason why I was inspired to create Woke Kindergarten is in the thinking about like what it was like when our ancestors took the knowledge that they had gained and they were the ones that decided that our liberation is in literacy. Our liberation is in this learning, is in this knowledge that they're not giving us, that they're keeping from us. So what we're going to do is we're going to take it and we're going to have midnight school and we're going to share that wealth of knowledge with each other. And that's how we're going we, we gonna to free ourselves, right? And so that's kind of how I'm approaching this is like, I'm not even thinking about what these schools are doing. And I'm completely aligned with you, Rodney, and what we should be doing. And I think we need to start thinking about how we can do that outside of these spaces to equip our kids to be affirmed in themselves so much, to be healthy enough to, to, to advocate, to be able to advocate for themselves so much that when they go back to the school and they see, they, they're able to now think critically about what's going on and see how warped it is and fight, you know, against it themselves. What but is Midnight School for our listeners? Basically, like back in the day, right, when people were enslaved, right, you would have people who, let's say like you had someone who was working in the house, mm -hmm. right, who then is educated by these white folks, right? who are still enslaving people. This is why I don't really enjoy talking about them too much, but they're gaining this knowledge in some capacity and taking this knowledge back and literally having school between the hours of like 11 p.m., 1, 2 a.m. at night, where they're then sharing that wealth and breadth of knowledge with one another. 
Like that to me is how we've always been able to learn outside of what's been imposed upon us. They given us Bibles, right? And we're sitting here realizing that like, hold up, that ain't, that can't be it. Cause even though we have the Bible, we're still enslaved. So we must need more. Right. Um, so really kind of taking that of like, even how people have learned for centuries in indigenous cultures, like people have been able to learn communally together by sharing that knowledge, by storytelling, right? And so th- that kind of horizontal alignment outside of these spaces, that's what we need. We need to decolonize the learning process because we didn't used to learn like this. Even prior to desegregation, <laughs> like we we were good, which is why white people were like, okay, wait, we have to pretend that we want to integrate schools. So like, let's get something started. And, and, and 20,000 black <laughs> teachers in the process. Period. Yeah. Almost, <laughs> most of whom came from Shaw too. Like shout out yeah. to Shaw yeah. in North Carolina. Cause they were like, where are all the black teachers? Well, they didn't got fired. Principals got fired. And they're still doing that. That's That was yeah. replicated in New Orleans, right? When they came in and they completely rehauled the public school system in the wake of Katrina. And so like, I really feel like that's something, Akia, what you said in terms of like, we have to reimagine and rebuild right now while things are destroyed because yeah. what we do know is that they, right? Because that's what happened. Yeah in New Orleans. That's what's happening in places where you have mass gentrification in you know, Detroit, Milwaukee, where if we're not coming together and thinking about ways that we can really like... Richmond. Yeah, Richmond. What <laughs> 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 <But> you said. <laughs> not reimagining these spaces. They, they call it a social experiment when they talk about rezoning schools oh, in Richmond. That's what they call oh, Wow to go there right now because I will get mad but like you know that we, we don't reimagine and recreate these spaces it will be done for us and it will be done in a way that is always to our detriment and so like one of the things that we we like to do on on this podcast are just like do you have anything that you like would recommend for our listeners because you know it's social political a lot of people who come and they listen, some of them know what we're talking about. Some of them, this is the first time that they've really ever heard about anything that we're, that we're talking about. So if you have anything to like promote or share or things that you think people should be reading or looking into just generally, generically, we'd love for you to share those with our listeners. I've got, I've got two books myself. So (laughs) one thing I always, well, just kind of links into the condemnation of blackness. That's probably one of the books that just really opened my eyes. I mean, there's stuff that I already knew, but to put it in such historical terms about how we made Black criminal in America. Mm-hmm. So that's really a book that I truly, truly recommend. And the second one is Locking Up Our Own by mm-hmm. James Foreman. And it really talks about the role of the African-American community in the expansion of the um, prison industrial complex. That's fascinating. I really, really like that. You know, and he puts it in context of how we're limited in what we can do due to, you know, white supremacy. But it's also, we do have choices we can make. And sometimes we make the bad choices that lead to more destruction in our neighborhoods than good. And so those are two books I highly recommend to most people. Thanks. I've not, I haven't read either one of them, and I'm going to go write those down. I have two. One I've already talked about. It's very theory-dense, but it's called Progressive Dystopia, Abolition, Anti-Blackness, and Schooling in San Francisco. It's by Savannah Shangay, and it is very deeply embedded in, like, Black studies, but basically it's kind of like this understanding, this, like, the, there's this theoretical framework around abolition in schools and how sometimes abolition and teachers who are trying to be anti-Black can bump heads. And so it's yeah. just like, 
framework that I've just never seen before um, that I'm really enjoying. It came out in 2019. Another one that came out in 2019 um, is We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolition. Yes. Tina Love, yes. Tina. Yes. Educational Freedom by Bettina Love. I had the supreme opportunity to meet with her. She came to a conference at uh, Stanford and just blown away by blown away by her work. She spoke at Armstrong about two, three months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, VC, you brought her in, but she spoke at Armstrong. Yeah, her kids are dope. She's got twins and they are hilarious. They're dope. <laughs> um, Bettina and I had like the, well, I had the ultimate pleasure of meeting Bettina a couple years ago. Was it a couple years ago? Oh man, COVID got me thinking that we've been in, in this joint for like a whole year. Maybe it was last year. It might've been last year. We were on a panel. <laughs> Listen, probably. Uh, March was the longest year I'd ever experienced in my life, honestly. But we had the pleasure of being able to meet on a, a panel um, at South by EDU, I think last year. And God, well, I want to remember what my panel was called. James, he's going to... He's going to kill me for not remembering. But it was basically on like affirming LGBTQ voices in hip hop. And due to the work that Bettina does um, and her pedagogy and like the work that I had done with just in my own work in like Woke Kindergarten and also with like Sisters Unsigned and Women Amplify and all of those various avenues, we had the pleasure of meeting. And this year we were supposed to be there. She, myself, my homie, Marilene, my homie, Dr. Farima, all homies who are like in Oakland doing the work, education for liberation, teachers for social justice. Like we had a panel called Girls Need Love Too. What will it take to thrive? Mm-hmm. And I'm so hurt because like we never got a chance. We didn't have a chance to do it. But it was it was sure to disrupt a lot of what that's been my main goal going to EDU for a while. So definitely I'm on board. All of Bettina's work. My homie Dr. Farima, she's the dopest. She works a lot with Dr. Uh, Sean Jenright, who basically coined like healing centered practice. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people, we talk about, okay, what well, can we do this trauma informed, trauma informed, trauma informed? And, you know, Dr. Jenright decided, like, hey, like we really need to be looking at our practice as like healing centered. Yeah. It's like, how can we work from, from that realm of healing? And, you know, Farima, I don't know how. She has the energy. She's like Dr. Farima on like Instagram. I don't know how she has the energy. She's at um, University of San Francisco right now to do the work that she does. But I swear to you, I've never met anybody <laughs> with that much like energy for people. Like she is just an incredible um, person and resource. And so a lot of the things that I think I have to offer are like actually people. That's why I love that you named, you know, Dr. Love. Um, and then one of the books that I hold really near and dear to my heart and I'm like actually going back and forth through right now is teaching to transgress um, by bell hooks education as the practice of freedom. I follow a lot of just like black women. Like I I can't, for me being a globalist, being an abolitionist, like Angela Davis is one of my ultimate heroes of all time. And so just to read through um, bell hooks, there's something that she said in this book in her chapter theory as liberatory practice. She said, I came to theory because I was hurting. Right. And that's, that's so, it's so deep to me, right? Like we often come to these places of wanting to understand, and like where this pain is coming from, how can I fix it? What can I do about it? And so much, so much of what we do, especially in like academia and higher ed, we get lost in the theory. And then when it's time to put it into practice, 
there's some type of disconnect, but just like the, the thoughtfulness and the critique, you know, because she has conversations in this book where she has conversations with herself on critiquing like pedagogy of the oppressed and like the, yeah. the, the sexist undertones with it. So those are kind of my, my little shout outs for now. First of all, I'm gonna go back to this book that I read last year. I was at a VCU School of Ed conference. Maybe it was the Equity Conference, sponsored by the Department of Education and I think VCU School of Ed. And Dr. Ivory Toldson was there. And the book is No BS, Bad Stats. Black people need people who believe in Black people mm-hmm. enough not to, not to believe every bad thing they hear about Black people. Like Dr. Toldson is this, like, he's a numbers guy, right? But he always looks at the numbers and say, hey, like, when you present data in, like, a deficit perspective, he said numbers tell a story, but it doesn't always tell the story that we think that we're hearing, right? Even down to, like, graduation rates. Numbers lie, too. Yeah, Jay-Z lied to us when he said numbers don't lie, right? (laughs) But, like, Dr. Tolson talked about how most places that look at graduation rates, they look at it exclusively from the number of students who graduated minus the number of students who started the ninth grade at that school. And so in places like Richmond Public Schools, where kids, they may start at one of the specialty schools in ninth grade, but before you know it, they're collegiate, St. Chris, St. Catharines, athletes, Benedictine, (laughs) right? And then next thing you know... Next thing you know, they're like, oh, man, like graduation rates are so poor here. And it's like, well, that's not definitely telling the story. So that's one book. And then another book that I have, like I purchased that I haven't started it yet. It's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. I keep hearing like, so, you know, we've all, most of us have heard someone say that black people can't be racist, right? And apparently like that's one of the things he talked about in the book like black people can be racist but if we look at it from like a deficit perspective we say that like we don't have any power and then uh kendy goes on to say basically you're a racist or you're anti-racist so which one are you there's no gray area that's from my understanding what i heard from other people but i read it it's a really good book you know i mean he has some points where he hits and misses on but you know it really to me it hit me because you know he really talked about you know, are you anti, are you homophobic? Are you anti-homophobic? So that hit me because like, I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing good work, but then it really made me question some of the things I was doing, some of the actions I was taking. So it really hit me, you know what I mean? So yeah. I really like that book. It's, and he goes through race, class, gender, sex. I mean, he goes through everything and outlines you either one side or you the other. And so it was really good. And like I said, he misses on some points, but overall I thought it was a good book because it led to reflection of self. And any book I can read that makes me kind of look at myself in a different light as I always think is a good book. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It seemed like that went by super, super fast. <laughs> But I'm so excited. Can you all let people know how they can reach you through social media, email, whatever you want to share, you feel comfortable. If people want to, you know, they're inspired by by what we talked about or by you or want to connect. I think before I do that, I just also, we talked briefly about Ahmad. I just also mm-hmm. want people to kind of maintain this same energy for all of the Black trans women that are yeah. being yes. murdered every single day in this country. Um, the most marginalized group in this country, outside of our country, being murdered. I I want us to say their names too. You know, I want us to talk about Nina Pop. And I want us to really do some deep dive and reflective work and introspective work on why it seems like, yes, we know that 
people don't value black lives in America. We know that people don't value the lives of black men in America, black women in America. And yet most black trans women are murdered by black men. And so we need to really do some deep dives into that and start to talk about why we aren't kind of shouting this into the streets in the same way. You know, this is, this is super important. And I, and I, want to be mindful of that as well. You know, if we're running for Ahmad, then, you know, we need to do something for Nina. So, um, yeah, that said, otherwise you can find me um, at Woke Kindergarten on Instagram or at Akia, U-H-K-I-E-A. I spell it phonetically for all of the white folks who have always called me Ikea, even though my name starts with an A. And <laughs> A makes more than one sound. So <laughs> as an early childhood educator, I decided to do that. So you can find me there and then you can look up, you know, Black Teachers Matter on Equitable Schools. Um, again, I've kind of taken a pause to really focus on well, kindergarten, um, but those are the easiest ways to contact me. Um, and my email is hello at akiagross.org. Yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Rod Robinson RVA. You can find out a little bit more about my journey as teacher of the year and how to get in contact with me at rodrobinsonrva.com. You can still go through the Council of Chief State Schools officers, but my year is almost up and thank goodness, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Gosh, y'all just don't, y'all just don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Want to know? We need to have a whole nother podcast for that. That's a whole book I'm I'm working on. Seriously, <laughs> things I've gone through this year as a black person in this role. Or oh, intoy2019 at gmail dot com, and I'm ready to be free. <laughs> <laughs> We're ready for you to be free too. Coop, did we eat today? Ah, uh, I think we ate for sure. I think we had a full course meal. What about you? I think we did. I, I'm excited. I'm I'm ready to like be done so I can listen to <laughs> to the podcast. Yeah, and thank you all both for agreeing to join so quickly and to do this. And you know, love for you to come back, update us on the work that you're doing. And um, we always like to challenge our listeners to like get involved and join the movement, right? Yeah, and I I, I didn't name the person but the original midnight teacher Lillian Granderson look her up so yeah. if you want to kind of dive more deeply into that um, dropping knowledge into the, the drop the name <laughs> no yes. I really, we really appreciate having you all here hopefully this is something that we can just like this not be just like a one-off thing that we can build um around. thank you appreciate y'all all right thank you appreciate it